once again to the Top 1% Podcast. My name is Tom. My name is Seb. How are you all doing? So in the past week, we had yet another round of uh, democratic debates as well as a primary. And this time around, it was the South Carolina primary. And during the debates, we had a kind of uh, rerun of, or basically picked up where it left off in the debate before, where um, the candidates sort of coalesced around Bernie Sanders and trying to attack him with uh, Bloomberg throwing the old jabs in. I think that was a pretty disappointing uh, debate in the lead up to South Carolina. And the the polling indicated after that debate that uh, opinion was split on who actually won it. I think Bernie edged out on top mm-hmm. and uh, except the results were more or less evenly spread. So it was very tight because, because there was no clear winner. It was a bit of a mess. And that led us up to uh, last Sunday's um, South Carolina caucus which uh, eventuated in a Joe Biden win. So what are your thoughts on this? Uh, these caucus results? Are these surprising to you? It's a primary, mate. Sorry, primary. Are these surprising to you? No, for, for, for a variety of reasons. South Carolina was um, meant to be Joe Biden's uh, in, the, in the bag for him, at least. Um, there's good evidence to suggest that uh, uh, Biden was very much helped by the fact that Joe Clyburn, who's the uh, majority House whip uh, for the Democrats, and a long-time respected person uh, within the uh, black uh, community within South Carolina holds huge sway within that uh, elect- electorate. Um, uh, his endorsement of Biden essentially gave Biden the huge, massive win that he uh, managed to, to, to grab. Um, so that, that was not unexpected. I guess the margin uh, between the candidates might have been a little bit uh, closer had that Clyburn endorsement not come along and maybe um, Biden's sort of not necessarily strong debate performance, but... Um, good enough and that's probably in mm. that was probably and once again he was kind of in the shadows so yeah. he, the the attention wasn't on him but that, that actually wasn't too bad of a thing for him because all he needed was to come out of that um debate unscathed, unscathed yeah. yeah and of course most of the people focused their attention on bernie or uh or bloomberg um and i mean <laughs> i mean the entire debate was quite a uh, uh well a raucous uh, event um to, to see the least and of course um, there were moments in it that sort of uh, reminded me of uh, a point in the Republican primary back in 2016 mm. uh, notably candidates trying to go after uh, a perceived front runner Trump uh, who was batting away attacks left right and centre and also actually um, paid people within the audience uh, which uh, Trump had a go at Jeb Bush for back in 2016 uh, if you remember it was quite a fu- it was quite a uh, momentous occasion where Trump mm. uh, highlighted the fact that within the audience sat every one of Jeb Bush's donors he got booed yeah, yeah I remember that and then he, and then he just doubled down yeah he doubled down <laughs> on it and he didn't care I think uh, Bernie made a comment after the uh, debate about it but he didn't say anything during the debate but he did point at Bloomberg and then point at the audience and sort of say uh, something's going on here, but anyway, it was a yeah, it was a debate of very little. Uh, in there was no informative um, discussion within it. To mm. be honest, it was um, whilst the Nevada debate was sort of at least entertaining. This one was just uh, all over all over the place and a bit of a mess. Yeah, I think uh, that was, was back to the the same old boring. Yeah, debate but even even then, I mean, before then they'd had at the very least discussions on policy of some sort. Uh, at this point, it looked like uh, at least within the South Carolina debate it was. Uh, nothing of the sort, and it had just been. Um, it was it was Nevada combined with you know previous um, debates. So yeah. you had you had the the fiery attacks, but with some discussion there. But it just it amounted to nothing. You got none of the good things from each of those mm. uh, two different types of debates. But yeah, the, the South Carolina uh, primary um, pretty much revived Joe Biden's candidacy. Um, 
if Joe Biden had maybe even won the the state by maybe ten percent, five percent, he might have been looking at the uh, the end of the barrel. To be mm. honest, because uh, this is meant to be his firewall. South Carolina uh, is uh, at least within the Democratic electorate is the forty sixth most rep- most representative state in the country. Yeah, this uh, was a pretty huge result for Joe Biden. I mm. think obviously most people expected him to win this. It's a predominantly black state, and he polls pretty well. Uh, among the black population. It's also a very conservative state, yeah. Yeah, because most of those blacks, especially the ones who voted, I believe uh, the, most of them were above the age of 45. Yeah, or the majority over 45. So, so very old, yeah. So that's very telling of the kind of base that they had to appeal to. And, mm-hmm. and, and that actually works strongly in Biden's favor and, and, and against Bernie to a certain degree. And Biden came out on top with uh, 48.4% of the votes with Bernie in second at 19.9, which kind of makes it the uh, the biggest, the most convincing victory we've seen so far in, in, in these uh, primaries and caucuses altogether. So another week, of no, another very weak showing actually for Elizabeth Warren with 7.1 and Amy Klobuchar was uh, with, with 5% of the share with along the other candidates at the bottom. So it was, a, a, apart from... Biden and Bernie, the the rest had extremely uh, disappointing runs. I think Bernie did well considering a twenty percent a twenty percent share isn't bad considering the uh, uh, you know the the fact that it was an older, mm-hmm. more, slightly more conservative base that he had to appeal to. Yeah, Bernie got more votes than he did in in twenty sixteen. Actually, it was just the fact that once again Biden mm-hmm. um, has deep ties to the. Um, uh, community within South Carolina. He spent a lot of money there. He spent most of his time there. Uh, if you want a sort of anecdote of what that might mean, it's the fact that, you know, Biden himself has spent, uh, has only ever been to one uh, Super Tuesday state. Mm. There's 15 of them and they're going to be voting tomorrow. Yep. And, and that, the Bernie campaign actually reported a, 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 $46.4 million. Yeah, and an increase in uh, bu- the, the buying of TV ads across That's these it, states yeah. as well. So, yeah, so uh, tactically speaking, Bernie is on the front foot. Uh, but I don't know why the Biden campaign has faltered in that respect. Maybe it's a, a slowdown in donations or something. Well, I think that, yeah, for the problem was that for Biden... Um, at least going into Iowa, the narrative was that it was going to be him versus Bernie at the top of uh, the race, sort of uh, trying to vie off against each other. Uh, Pete Buttigieg pepped him to that uh, position. And then, of course, because of that, uh, going into New Hampshire, um, what's it called? Um, Joe Biden was uh, sort of second rate. He came, of course, fifth in that state, which was an absolute uh, disgrace, to be honest, considering the fact that he was a former VP. Um, and, you know, for, for him... It's uh, it was a bad showing, and probably gave him very little momentum in that sense. So, um, yeah. So it's been uh, a weird week. I guess it's sort of revived his campaign. And it's given them the free media that he needs to mm. to get back into the race. He's had a sharp increase in the polling. With yeah. Sanders still at the, according to the national average in the lead at twenty seven point five. Biden now at 21.3, so it is getting a bit closer and it's turning into a sort of two-horse uh, race. Two race uh, that would vote. also be helped by the fact that, well, we'll talk about it in a second, but of course, a couple of people have dropped out. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think well, that's probably enough of the South Carolina primary. I think for the, the mm. most part, it was a convincing win for Biden. Uh, yeah. It helps survive his campaign. Uh, it was faltering at that point and he had, he was strapped on cash. I know that for a fact. Yeah, he certainly needed this win. Yeah, so uh, if, if Biden had come within sort of a 5% margin of, of losing, so if it was a a real close race so even if Sanders had won uh, we wouldn't be having this conversation it'd yeah. likely be already over and wrapped up mm. but since it, he did have that win uh, we have had a spate of dropouts from uh, some high profile candidates within the race uh, the first of which was of course Pete Buttigieg 
Oh, actually, before Pete Buttigieg, it was actually Tom Steyer, but mm-hmm. of course, Tom Steyer wasn't polling anywhere near yeah, as well. Relevant. It's quite ironic, of course, because Tom Steyer actually came third in South Carolina, which is a pretty respectable showing from him. Yeah, I was actually surprised to see him do I better. wasn't. I know for a fact he'd put a lot of money into that state and he was actually yeah. polling pretty well there, but that's just uh, my my view on that. But the, the funny thing was that there's a spate of candidates beneath him, you know, Pete Buttigieg, Klobuchar, and Elizabeth Warren, of course, we'll talk mm. about those in a couple of seconds, but one of them, of course, being Elizabeth Warren. She hasn't dropped out yet. I'll talk about that in a little second. Uh, so, of course, after Tom Steyer, there was Pete Buttigieg. He decided to drop out. Uh, it was a bit um, abrupt. He was uh, on air, actually, probably three, four hours earlier talking yeah. uh, to the media. He's like, yeah, yeah, we're going into Super Tuesday, going to look good, et cetera, et cetera. We're firing up everything. And then all of a sudden, on a, while he was on the plane going to somewhere, he says, okay, we're dropping out. Um, so, yeah, that's it. That's it for us. And then, um, <laughs> you know, trust me, it was, it was very funny to, to watch the video. Mm. Uh, that was, of course, followed by uh, Amy Klobuchar, who announced that she was dropping out. Uh, she, that came out a very weird sort of time, but it was kind of expected considering what happened with Pete Buttigieg. Um, immediately after she dropped out, she endorsed Joe Biden. And after that happened, Pete Buttigieg decided to come in on the action and endorse Joe Biden. Mm. And then, of course, um, came Better O'Rourke out of nowhere. Uh, he's been hiding in the woods for, for many years now. I haven't seen him uh, in a little while. And he's uh, suddenly come out and he's endorsed Biden right on the eve of the uh, Texas primary. So make of that what you will. Um, so essentially what we've had happen here is the uh, establishment coalesced behind Biden. They've seen him as the yeah. only credible um, threat to, to Bernie at the top of the ticket. Um, so it's the, yeah, it's this the Hail point, Mary. Yeah, at this point, it's Bernie versus everyone. Um, yep. All these candidates coalescing around Biden, giving their support. This has given him, along with the South Carolina victory, uh, a sharp boost in the polls, yep. an increase in donations, uh, and um, um, a sharper increase in media coverage as well. So it, it seems to be manifesting itself as a, a, a an exclusively two-horse race unless Bloomberg can surprise us uh, during Super Tuesday with with all the money he's spent, but that remains to be seen. Yeah. And of course, uh, as of recording, Super Tuesday is tomorrow, so we'll actually um, explore that in the next episode. Yep. But Super Tuesday could be very decisive if, if, if Bernie uh, wins quite convincingly in in a few areas. He'll, uh, I think it's mo- all but over. Um, if, if it's 50-50 between him and Biden, that makes it even more interesting going into the, the actual... Uh, 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 nomination itself so it, it's all looking um, very interesting at the moment yeah um, I'll make a quick comment on a couple of things just before we, we head off because this is actually fairly interesting of course um, there has been uh, New York Times reporting that Obama behind the scenes has been making the calls to various candidates including Pete Buttigieg uh, Better O'Rourke and of course Sammy Klobuchar telling them that they uh, should coalesce behind Biden since the, he's the the only chance of um, of the of the establishment winning um, once again I, I really do want to reiterate this because I don't think um, at least the establishment doesn't, I don't think, understands this. Uh, Biden is the, the surefire way for Democrats to lose in 2020. I, you, you can find various polls telling you that Joe Biden will win against Trump, that uh, Joe Biden will win 368 electoral votes against Trump and there will be a landslide victory according to, to every polling measure. Um, I'd like to, I disagree fully with those polls. Um, I don't think there's any easier way to depress voter turnout than to, yeah, to put yeah. Joe Biden at the top of the ticket. I think you'll definitely see low voter turnout for the Democrats if Joe Biden is running the ticket. Because um, uh, he has a, famously, he has a pretty sleepy campaign. Yep. Not only in himself, but uh, his, his voter base is not necessarily uh, passionate or mm-hmm. wholly invested in it. 
and I think that would definitely hurt him. And even when it comes in, in the face-to-face moments in the in the presidential debates, Trump would eviscerate him oh, when yeah. it comes to the, the the typical insults. And and a big problem going against Biden as well is the fact that not many people actually know what proposals no. and what worldview he's putting forward. He seems to be just the the anti-Trump guy who mm-hmm. doesn't have. A, a, a comprehensive worldview and, and plan to beat Trump. So uh, that will be another point of uh, contention for most people, I think. Yeah, I think the yeah. Once again, Biden is sort of um, uh, incorrectly identified as a as a as a figure to defeat Trump. That's that's the that's the same message that he's been running on since the start of his campaign. Mm. I will beat Trump, and that's uh, all he's been going for. Uh, problem, of course, being is that Biden's campaign has really struggled to get people out to vote. Firstly, look at Iowa, for example, where it was um, it was forecasted to win around about twenty twenty four percent of the vote. He ended up mm. getting almost half of that. It was down mm. to ten percent, twelve percent, which meant that, of course, nobody came out to vote from New Hampshire, um, another famous state where he came in fifth. Nevada, he did all right in, but of course, it was a it was a fairly poor showing from him, considering the fact that. Um, Biden's meant to be doing very well in diverse states. And of course, Nevada is actually a very important state going into 2020 because um, while it is a fairly democratic state, um, it isn't what you'd call a safe uh, state at all. And in fact, mm. uh, it could be in play with the wrong candidate at the top of the ticket. I think Bernie Sanders would easily win Nevada against uh, Trump simply because of his uh, ties to the Latino community. But uh, for Biden, I think it'd be a bit, a bit of a harder uh, play for him. Um, and of course, the, the wider implications of this is that uh, we're sort of seeing the final, um, the final fight between you know the establishment and the and the um, and the emerging uh, left or center left within the uh, Democratic Party, mm. um, and it is quite sad to see that while this sort of fight is happening and as the, the center coalesces around each other, uh, Elizabeth Warren uh, continues to play her various own political games um, with no path to the nomination. Uh, she is uh, refusing to drop out because, uh, well, I mean. I, I, don't, I don't know. It could be... I, I genuinely think something might have happened behind the scenes. Someone's told well, her that... Wasn't wasn't there a, a clip of one of her campaign advisors on, I believe it was CNN or mm-hmm, something, mm-hmm. Uh, talking about their tactic mm-hmm. running up to the uh, Super Tuesday? That, yep, yep. Um, uh, I think it was if there's a contested... Yep, convention. Um, convention there. Oh, <laughs> there you go. You dropped something. Um, if there's a contested convention... Warren would be seen as this unifying candidate who can who can win the vote, but that remains to be seen. I think right now her her campaign is pretty much dead in the water. She she's been steadily dropping in the polls. Uh, she's been mostly ignored at these debates when she's tried to go out on the front foot and attack other candidates. And her, her campaign has been exposed recently as quite dishonest. Actually, she sure. she she has lied on multiple occasions. <laughs> She has um, used some quite underhanded tactics uh, against Bernie Sanders, who is the front runner, of course. So it's a bit of a mess for for the likes of Warren at the moment. Yeah, I'll make a point on this because I I genuinely think it's an important thing to to keep a note of. I think um, there's definitely been talks behind the scenes between Warren and maybe Biden or some establishment figures within the party. Uh, to to notify that she if she stays in the race um, she may have a position somewhere mm-hmm. in an administration. Um, I think the uh, the talk of the contested convention is just an excuse and a front to to put up to voters to say this is why we're still in the race. Um, Warren has re- really no shot at winning the nomination. She doesn't unify anybody. The centrist hater, the left hater now, because of the fact that she's gone after Sanders. Um, she has no place in the, in the um, in the top tier of candidates. She appeals to can- to people that uh, have. 
are going to have no say in the 2020 election in terms of winning it. You know, mm. uh, wealthy, uh, educated college elites, those types of people, are the mm. types of people that Warren um, panders to and also uh, gains a lot of support from, they're not going to decide the 2020 election. It's going to be the white, uh, uh, non-college educated people. Uh, uh, people in Rust Belt states like Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania that are going to decide the 2020 election. And I guarantee you, uh, Warren would never win those uh, people yeah, over. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, on the point of Buttigieg and Klobuchar, I suspect that they've also been offered some various positions and been told that they need to get out of the race um, ASAP uh, in order for Biden to have a shot at winning it against Sanders. Because yeah. then moving out of the race actually clears it up for, for Biden to get a few more votes from their um, from the voters that were actually going to vote for Biden as for Buttigieg and Klobuchar. Uh, it makes it a little bit easier for him to get above the uh, threshold in California, for example, the 15% threshold, uh, which, of course, gives him a, a huge swath of delegates if he can do that. Uh, currently, I think we could probably say that California is one of the safest states uh, for Sanders, but I would still be wary mm. of calling it. Um, so of course, there's been about 9 million early ballots uh, uh, sent in already, so they may have may play a, a huge role within this um uh, within the counting tomorrow that happens because of course those early ballots would have been based on uh, the race as it was maybe three four weeks ago which is completely different what it, from what it was now yeah so uh, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens on Super Tuesday I, I suspect the, the results of what we get from Super Tuesday will be uh, the deciding factor in the nomination yeah I think they should be very um, at least indicative of the, the final result and, mm-hmm. and we'll have a much clearer idea of what will happen because at the moment anything goes I think sure. uh, depends what happens but um I think it would be a mistake to nominate Joe Biden because Mm -hmm. uh, there seemed to be this kind of, it seems to me at least, that there was this kind of culture of anti-Obamaism that helped bring Trump to power Mm -hmm. uh, in 2016. And to me, all Biden represents really (laughs) is, uh, I was VP under, uh, I was vice president under the Obama administration. Well, well, it's interesting because, you know, Hillary Clinton ran on continuation of, Barack Obama yeah, in 2016. P- people rejected that yeah. outright. I think I think America has largely moved on for that. Obviously, there are there's swathes of the you know African American, slightly older generation that is still very sympathetic to that view, and that's obviously mostly driven by some kind of identitarian thing. But for the most part, I think America has moved on from the the Obama esque type um, uh, of figure. I've also never heard, never seen a candidate in American politics win by saying he wants to turn back the clock. Now, mm. you could say that Trump might have said that, but that's, I don't think that's the case. Trump at least had a vision going forward for what he wanted to do, which yeah. is to completely overturn some of the things that Obama had said in, in, in various parts. Yep. You know, for example, uh, renegotiating trade deals, building the wall. Yep. Um, these were, at the very least, you know, bold ideas put forth by, by, yeah. by Donald Trump, and they... You know, at the very least, he, he sold them on a message that they would help the the working class. Whatever Joe yeah. Biden's running on now is just a return to normalcy in the past. I'm not exactly. sure that can win the, Turning that back the clock, what does that exactly mean? <laughs> I think he means that we're just going to go back to the Obama administration and people still wanted a lot of things to be amended within the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. And I think Trump definitely caught some of the public conscious with his campaign by exactly as you mentioned by saying things like we'll build the wall obviously he ran on his make america great again Mm -hmm. slogan which is a kind of nostalgic phrase whatever it may mean but uh think saying things like build the wall uh provide some sort of uh goal that you can attain something something tangible that represents a rigorous immigration policy or something along those lines but biden doesn't have anything like that that can really help 
represent his views or his campaign. Also, um, Trump can easily run to the left of Biden on a, a few issues. Yeah, Trade, for example, easily. He, he, can, he could probably outspend Biden as yeah, well. He could, yeah, easily outspend Biden. Of course, Mike Bloomberg might have a, a chance at uh, bankrolling Biden in a general election, <laughs> but that would be uh, there to see. But um, Trump would absolutely demolish uh, Biden on corruption. I mean, Hunter Biden's oh, yeah. a, a sitting duck there for, for Trump In to fact, go after. Uh, funny you should mention that. I think it was the other day a Ukrainian court actually advised the subpoena of Hunter Biden in in, in, a, in, a, in a trial setting. So that will be interesting to see how that turns out. I mean, it's funny because you, you listen to that and all I hear is literally Hillary Clinton emails 2016. <laughs> and we all know what happened when those yeah. emails came out yeah. and what they allowed Trump so to Trump do. So Trump can use pretty much the same tactic yep. this time around. Yeah. Because now he's technically being vindicated mm-hmm. through the through the acquittal because it's funny because joe biden in many ways represents the establishment once again trump can run as an anti-establishment figure yeah and that's funny because trump is a sitting president yeah exactly. of a of a, of a, a rep- republican party so it, for all intents and purposes he does represent the establishment <laughs> but he but can run as anti-establishment yeah. against biden well, because uh, he's so establishment i think here we would see echoes of 2016 mm-hmm. it'd be Biden, as a person, obviously, isn't Hillary 2.0, but I think um, when it comes to the, the general climate and how he approaches the Trump and how Trump approaches him, I think we would see a, th- a few evocations of, of the Hillary campaign, and that's yeah. not a good thing for America. I think you'll see an even bigger Trump win, possibly. Yeah, and I think the problem, of course, is you can't attack Trump on character, present a, a, prevent, present a vision to the American people yeah. of what you want to do and why it you want to do it. It has to be policy and vision-oriented, otherwise you'll lose, because if you try to do it based on rhetoric, personality, mm-hmm. character, likability, I think Trump will win it with a landslide, well, especially I mean, the, in a debate setting. Yeah, I mean, the never-Trumpers have been trying it for four years, and it's achieved nothing for them. So they, they just look more foolish. Yeah, they, so, I mean, if you can't engage on a, on a, on a policy level, uh, yeah. it, it really speaks to the fact that you have nothing to offer to, to people, and people see, see through that, but I think that's probably enough of us uh, on the uh, Democratic primary uh, for now, yeah. though, we will move to something that's uh, slightly related. We were talking about him before, but uh, Trump has announced, well, not Trump himself, but there has been announcements of a new U.S. deal uh, with the Taliban uh, to ne- negotiate a 14-month agreement uh, going forward for the removal of troops from Afghanistan, um, pending a few little details here and there. Uh, it is probably the most um, uh, comprehensive and most um um, what, what would we say? Um, um, well, I guess uh, I, I guess comprehensive is <laughs> yeah. a good word. To <laughs> comprehensive, describe it, yeah, sure. It it is uh, quite um, momentous because this is That's an ongoing it, yeah. conflict that has gone for what over a decade mm-hmm. now, and uh, uh, no other president has really um, taken these measures. That, but frankly. It's quite an unpopular occupation. That, uh, most people, I don't think, want troops in Afghanistan. Some people obviously make the argument that they they're the hawks ne- in uh, Washington <laughs> yeah. that they're needed there to keep the peace and and to keep stability. But um, that seems to have been disproven as, as time has told. Well, I think the Americans at least are a, a bit tired of wars, and I think that's a, a another reason mm. why um, uh, what's his, uh, Donald Trump actually won in twenty sixteen. So yeah. there you go. Yeah. So there's a the 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 withdrawals set to begin within 10 days of the peace agreement which was signed last Saturday between the United States and the Taliban in, in collaboration with Qatar and Doha. And the numbers seem to be relatively modest, a reduction of troops from 12,000 to 8,600, <laughs> which would uh, 
result in American troops drawing back. At um, recent, uh, the New York Times actually reported that recent uh, attacks on, uh, I think it was, um, uh, I think it was the Afghani forces or the mm-hmm. Taliban um, occurred over the weekend, which 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 kind of shows the the, the complexity of the geopolitical situation here, mm-hmm. and it's not um, entirely simple to handle. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's uh, it's one of those moves where it's it's kind of hard to disagree with what Trump has done here. Um, I'll I'll take this from a sort of left wing point of view. I think it's the correct move. The the U.S. troop withdrawal has been a a long and uh, an arduous process. Mm-hmm. I think it's a it's a necessary thing to get those troops out of there. They are costing the American people more money than they uh than they they can they can put on on these things. Yeah, yeah. It has already cost two million uh, two trillion. Sorry, should I say, uh, for this war. Uh, it is now a horrendously unpopular war as well, mm-hmm. and it is, it is a very long-lasting war. Uh, you can draw a few parallels, of course, to some previous conflicts that the U.S. has been in. Uh, for example, something like a, a Vietnam, yep. uh, a long and sort of arduous process of getting people out, and it's it's finally boiled over to the point where people are happy to just get these people out. Um, I think taking a step back, though, uh, looking at this from a sort of geopolitical standpoint, um, the war itself has been nothing but a disaster. Uh, the Taliban mm. itself now controls about half of the country. Um, that's actually yeah. an increase from what they had back in 2001 when this war was yeah. started. That's not. I'm not saying that's a, a fault of Trump, by the way. I'm just saying that's the mm. uh, long-standing policy that has led to uh, this disaster mm. uh, in Afghanistan. So I think... Um, you know, if you'd said to someone in 2014, maybe 2015, when Obama was president, to get those troops out and to, to sign an, an agreement, um, people would have been like, "But uh, we can probably get the Taliban out um, even more in the uh, in the country." Of course, nowadays they own half the country. What's to say tomorrow they won't own 75 percent of the country? Yeah. Doing this deal now probably mm. saves a lot of face and probably means that they can get out before um, any it, the situation gets any worse. And of course, I think within the agreement, the stipulations that the Afghani uh, government needs to talk with the Taliban. Mm. I doubt that will happen, but I guess... Well, as as I noted before, there was an attack over the weekend between uh, yeah. the Taliban and Afghani troops, so there's still uh, unresolved tensions mm-hmm. there, and some people may view it as irresponsible for the US to withdraw it. But at this point in time, this has gone for so long, uh, enforcing peace hasn't necessarily worked, and as you said, the Taliban have regained more territory and more control, mm-hmm. and it's looking to be uh, an almost futile effort here, and uh, this this is part of the ongoing and broader narrative of interventionism in the Middle sure, East from sure. the United States and, and its various allies, and, uh, and which is becoming increasingly unpopular. Mm-hmm. So I think for the most part, this is a positive thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think I haven't looked at any polling in regards to this act, precise decision, but... I, I, I'd suspect that this is a reasonably popular move. Yeah, I think considering the fact that the... I'm fairly sure the Afghan war actually polls really poorly these days, especially mm. considering the fact that it's gone on for 19 years. Yeah. So it has been a, a bit of a... Uh, a a shamokul, uh, as yeah. you might say. But the... the yeah, I mean, the fact is that... Um, I as you pointed out before, um, this is a sort of ongoing narrative within the uh, idea of uh, U.S. intervention in the Middle East. Yeah. Um, at least within Afghanistan, it's gotten to the point where, um, you know, the military, I'm not actually sure if it's the military themselves or whether it's the administration, um, believes that it's just not worth their time. I suspect the war hawks within Washington probably believe it's still worth it to be mm. in there. They probably still get lobbyist money from, from various military contractors, so it's within their best interest to ensure that those troops mm. stay there. But for the general public and probably for the administration, they 
rightly recognized that there's no benefit for the U.S. being there. Um, mm. And of course, it's a part of a discussion of whether or not you know, U.S. intervention actually helps out in any way yeah. within um, within helping out a country. You can look at, of course, Afghanistan, which is worse than it was back in yeah. 2001 in many, yeah. in many ways. Iraq is now a non-state in, mm. in absolute turmoil. Um, and, and there's also another point there, the fact that the now that the intervention obviously has been carried out, mm-hmm. uh, the fact of the matter is it's extremely hard to then negotiate some sort of peace agreement, which yep. is going yep. on right now. Um, due to the complexities of the matter, as we've seen over the weekend with the uh, the, the the additional violence, which kind of highlights the the broader narrative mm. of uh, of the difficulties that surround such peace agreements, uh, and one can say that that's a reason to not withdraw the troops. But then at the same time, if the America hadn't intervened in the first place, there wouldn't be this kind of co- complexity when it comes to negotiating. So so it is um, a very uh, hard to manage. Um, scenario but i think ultimately the best move is to kind of quell these tensions by uh, sure sure i think through absence so i think we'll move on to the uk now which we haven't actually talked about in a few weeks ever since uh, brexit officially happened and uh, ever since then in 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 the fallout of brexit and in the uh, ongoing turmoil of uh, the political atmosphere in in the united kingdom uh, Boris Johnson actually an, um, announced a cabinet reshuffle, and uh, Sajid uh, Javid, the um, the Treasury Secretary, secretary the, the famous Treasury Secretary, was actually uh, uh, well, he resigned, and he was he was seen as a key member as part of this new Boris Johnson uh, coalition. Uh, and the fact that he was kicked out was quite um, made made a few headlines over in the UK. And um, so, so what do you think about these cabinet reshuffles, and and, and what, why do you think these occurred? Well, I mean, it's fairly obvious. Obvious, wasn't it? Uh, the uh, the the higher up in in Boris Johnson, being the one person, Dominic Cummings, uh, was having a few problems with uh, Sajid David before. I think it was over the fact of the uh, what was it? The um, uh, the uh, independence of the of the treasury from, of course, uh, Boris Johnson himself. Um, and of course, mm. it has led to the appointment of um, what's his name, um, uh, uh, Rishi Sunak, yeah, um, yeah. who is now the new chancellor, uh, a former hedge fund manager. So there you go, some brilliant stuff there. So uh, private sector to public sector, uh, exactly what you want. Um, yeah, so I mean, the the cabinet reshuffle itself is nothing extraordinary. Mm. Uh, it's just a, a an interesting point uh, to to talk about because, of course. Um, you know, for for many reasons, this is sort of a, um, uh, an indication of where Boris Johnson himself is sort of going yeah. with his uh, in terms of governance. Yeah, I think that's true. I think it's a sort of power play. He, he's kind of showing mm-hmm. who's the boss. He wants the hardline party loyalists to remain, and the others who who slightly deviate to be kicked out. Because uh, when you run on the party ticket in in the parliamentary system, uh, well. That's why the concept of whips um, exists. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's for to ensure party loyalty, and I think Boris Johnson is trying to s- strongman this position <laughs> here, and 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 show some sort of uh, toughness. And it's been a very messy uh, administration so far, in my view, um, uh, since the election and yep, since yep. Brexit. Uh, they've announced um, an extremely uh, varied, uh, for lack of a better term, worldview when it comes to their policy proposals they've uh, they've proposed you know um i think it was a it was a bridge between uh 
Northern Ireland and the mainland or something mm, along, mm. like that. Obviously, the high-speed railway too, uh, which obviously amount to huge costs, um, and along with some other various austerity measures. So it's been a very strange mixture of policies, and I think Boris Johnson is trying to appease uh, the the the, elect- the the members of the electorate who who found um, Jeremy Corbyn's spending increases to be uh, appetizing. I think Boris Johnson is trying to give them a little bit of a taste of that in order to maintain some sort of electoral popularity. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see whether or not it it, uh, has any effect. Uh, Of course, the next election is still quite a while away. And of course, Brexit is still ongoing itself. So um, I guess the the fact Mm. is that uh, we have no idea how this will play out. Uh, So we'll see you in five years, I guess, yeah. (laughs) Well, um, as part of that as well was the uh, controversy surrounding Priti Patel, who is the uh, the cabinet office um, minister. Oh, sorry, the Home Secretary, and um, she was accused of bullying and and, and, and uh, un, un, you know, unfair ministerial conduct mm-hmm. when uh, she had to uh, uh, kick. Was it Michael Gove? She kicked out. I, I think so. That's yeah. the one. Yeah, and. Um, so that is an, another chapter that has made headlines in this ongoing um, sort of disaster for the Boris Johnson cabinet so far. I don't, I don't think um, he, he's doing too well with, with the British public at the moment. Um, and now that Brexit's gone, of course, the, 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 the government are now trying to negotiate with the EU and and those are proving to be very messy. So it's not... Mm-hmm. A couple of months ago, it looked good for Boris Johnson and his affiliates, but now it's it's looking to be rather... They're holding a tenuous position in yeah, government. It's been very messy. Uh, to be fair, I mean, Boris Johnson is fairly messy as a, as, a, as a character himself, so it's not really that uncharacteristic, to be honest. Uh, it is, um, you know, quite interesting to see. Um, the, I guess the thing is, you know, it's just sort of strange because in the UK, the... The consequences of a, of, a, of a bad cabinet right now, you know, having mm. a controversy. Uh, this is very early into the, the governance uh, of the, um, you know, the, the Boris Johnson government, which, of course, is uh, is majority conservative um, and has a, has a huge majority in the, in the House of Commons. The next yeah. election is not until 2025, as I mentioned yeah. before. And so these types of things um, have less weight when they go uh, so far, because, of course, in, in five years' time, it's very unlikely people even remember this sort of um, this sort of issue happening. Um, yeah. you know, if, for example, you know Brexit goes badly, that might be something that might uh, influence people more. But mm. of course, uh, at this current moment, there's really nothing to to see in terms of Brexit except for preliminary figures and and sort of growth data mm. and interesting stats. But at the moment, we don't really have a full picture of what's happening in mm. in in the in Britain at least. Well, uh, uh, to 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 add to your point they do considering it's a, a reasonably long time until the next election um as per the uh, fixed uh, term parliament act <laughs> they um they have a lot of time to deliver on their their manifesto promises so to speak but i think this controversy has arisen uh, among a time where a lot of the voters are growing kind of wary of the johnson cabinet of course it's still early days but I think people are calling for him to to be more um, proactive in his treatment of his own manifesto and, and deliver some of the promises. But I think it was the other day, I think a Guardian article detailed that Boris Johnson has said that he doesn't necessarily need to deliver on all manifesto promises, which is which is a, an interesting break from a sort of convention. Um, 
for example, things like uh, assessing the, the constitutional makeup of the system itself, that was something that was going to go under review as per the, the, the Johnson manifesto. But uh, there's no sign of that. So that's just one mm-hmm. of many examples. But of course, they have uh, you know the better part of five years to, to explore all of these things. And sure, only sure. time will tell. It's still early days. But I think uh, hindsight is a beautiful thing. And we can obviously sit here <laughs> and talk about the Tony Blair, Gordon Brown years. But... For now, uh, Boris Johnson, his cabinet's looking quite, quite shaky. shaky yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah. So um, moving on, uh, we wanted to sort of diversify uh, once again. We sort of struggled to get news outside of America, UK, and Australia. Uh, of course, mm. most of the news tends to come from those countries, so it is uh, quite hard to find anything well, outside of it. What can we say? We're Western-centric Yeah, we are here. Western-centric, but we do actually have sometimes, uh, or at least we try to um, cover, at the very least, uh, elections that come up. And this time, mm. we're kind of a out of the blue, sort of right. <laughs> um, is not necessarily what you'd expect from uh, people to cover. We had the uh, Slovakian uh, parliamentary election uh, this, um, I think it was like two days ago, actually, in fact, uh, or, th- or three days um, in which the uh, Slovakian people uh, elected uh, officials to the parliament. I think um, it was uh, an interesting result uh, overall. Uh, there yeah. were, was opinion polling uh, before the election uh, that showed that the uh, right-wing populist party um, within uh, Slovakia, which is obviously any anti-corruption, uh, mm. was actually taking the lead versus the sort of centre-left uh, social democracy party. Uh, and mm. at the same time, of course, it was there was an increase in, in the uh, percentage of people that were considering voting for a the more far-right sort of populist party, uh, We Are Family, within uh, Slovak, uh, Slovakia, should I say. And so, of course, on, on the election day itself, the anti-corruption party, uh, ordinary people, as they call themselves, uh, actually won a fairly resounding result. Mm. Um, I think they... Uh, are uh, about 20 seats short of a majority. Considering the fact there's about six major parties contesting for this election, it's not surprising they didn't um, reach a majority. Yeah, um, yeah so they, they secured almost 25% of the results. So, so yeah. it, it, it doesn't seem like much, but that's still a... Um uh, a win <laughs> in this, <laughs> sure, in this sure. election cycle due to the amount of parties. And they're the more, you know, centre-right party as opposed to some of the the more, uh, let's say, iffy far-right parties they had uh, down the line. Yeah, there was but I think two it, or three, actually, in fact, yeah. Yeah, I think it's been really interesting, um, and partly why we're talking about this, I think it's been really interesting to observe the results from countries in Western, Central, and even Eastern Europe uh, over the past few years, because... Uh, the the climate has shifted to a degree and obviously the, the rise of populism both on the left and the right has impacted European politics in particular and especially when they're now sort of this large broader narrative a lot of these countries are of this broader narrative mm-hmm. uh, under the under the name of the EU and it's interesting to see how each country has reacted to certain political trends and political fashions and uh, certain conditions and this is an ongoing chapter in that same narrative where um anti the, the self-described anti-corruption party is 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 has a clear lead uh, um so i think it must it has something to do with the the years of austerity taking their toll this kind of a yeah i would imagine that um even though the fact that Slovakia is sort of a lesser-known country, it's probably had the same sort of effects that has been seen in the the wider parts of yeah. Europe, austerity forces taking place. Um, so it has been quite interesting to, to see the um, the rise of, of those centre-right and sort of right-wing and far-right yeah. parties come, yeah. to, come to the fore, especially the ones that are sort of anti-immigration and... Um, 
sort of uh, in many ways, you know, th- uh, theological, uh, and of course they espouse various ideas that are mm. probably more out there um, mm. at the very least. They 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 try and tap into the anger of working class people um, in in the sense. So they try and appeal to them by saying that their problems are caused by this and that. Mm. Uh, the anti corruption party probably ran on a, on a ticket. Um, that was against corruption, as as is noted yeah. in their name. But of course, probably in Slovakia, it's very likely that the the country has suffered from uh, bouts of uh, corruption and uh, and mm. uh, people buying various um, parts of the election and and so forth. So mm. um, it's fairly common in, in sort of Eastern Europe and uh, sort of Central Europe to see those types of things happening. So of course, an anti-corruption. It's also point. interesting within the same continent within Europe to see the differences in electoral outcomes and, and cultures in mm-hmm. that sense because. In Eastern Europe, you have the more fervent uh, religious nations, which can, which vote can be swayed based on how uh, how, how much a certain party adheres to you know uh, traditional Orthodox or Christian values, mm, mm. Um, and, and how that can sway the country. Because uh, I, I was just talking to a friend from Serbia who just came back from Serbia, <laughs> and he was saying how how completely different the attitudes of um, a, a Central or Central East European country can be from you know the likes of australia it just it just in their general culture they're, they're much more um homogenous when it comes to their opinions and and their their views on broader society and faith mm-hmm. uh, especially with the controversial topics you know like gay marriage and and, and things like that so sure, sure. the way that informs politics is quite fascinating yeah i mean um yeah i mean eastern europe and, and western europe are almost two different sides of the actually mm. not even all of the same coin in many many ways uh, a lot of cultural differences between them that uh manifest themselves in in elections like these so you see uh completely different types of parties appealing to different types of people coming out um you know of course um christian uh democracy type um of of, of parties maybe in somewhere like a, a uk or, or france would sort of struggle mm. To, mm. to find traction because there's just not enough um um, you know, people. And then, to, 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 but then to, you have in a, in, a, in places like Poland, you have yep. the Law and Justice Party, which is a, a very a s- strong hardline party, very Christian, mm-hmm. uh, yet with massive welfare spending. So that's it. Yeah, the, so it's a the, bit of a weird one. Yeah, so yeah. it's very hard to find the. For example, the the Christian Party in the UK now has very very low support. It does mm-hmm. abysmally, yeah. um, but in places like Poland you see those those Christian parties absolutely flourish but not only that they have huge amounts of welfare spending which is something you don't really see in Western Europe yeah, from, it, from the, the hardline right parties yeah it's it's sort of a recognition that the people at, at the very least uh, are appealed to by by two factors of course being you know traditional traditional values to them you know or religion and of course uh, maintaining welfare or, or even creating welfare which of course is something that's very popular mm. in a lot of countries um, and I mean it sort of contrasts that with um something that was happening actually in Ireland uh, since the election has been sort of talks between various parties on who would form a government yeah. um, in the meantime while, while the entire sort of talks have been happening um, there has been sort of a, a lingering idea that if nobody can come to uh, an agreement of some sorts the, the people will go back to the polls and yeah. run for another election and that's something that uh, Sinn Féin might actually find very um, very uh, interesting because I think a new poll released uh, I think it was two days ago actually in fact was uh, showing that, sh- uh, that they were had uh, 33% of the vote versus um, the next best mm. party at 19%, which would, in, uh, if you translate that into sort of uh, uh, seats and, and votes, that would actually mean that he might be, might be able to get a majority. So, Well, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if the National Socialists can get a majority. 
<laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. on that note, I think we'll wrap up the podcast. Um, thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed. You can find us on Spotify, SoundCloud, and iTunes. Please check the description and look at all the links below. Don't forget to visit our website, which is also in the description at theexchanger.org. Yeah. It's, uh, it's we have some great articles <laughs> up there and more to come. But uh, yeah, thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. What